0: Listener-supported. WNYC Studios.
1: When was the first time you realized gay people existed?
2: Um... I don't know. (laughs) I think when I first moved to the West Village. (laughs) Hmm. When did
3: the movie The Birdcage come out?
2: I think I always knew. I don't remember it being a revelation. Mm. It just was sort of a fact of life. Yeah. yeah. The first parade was right under my window on West 4th Street. And I, th- I thought, wow, who are these people? They're great. <laughs>
4: <laughs> From WNYC Studios, this is Nancy. With your hosts, Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu. So, Kathy Tobin.
1: This month is the 20th anniversary of one of the biggest gay news stories of our lives.
2: And welcome to today on this Monday morning, everyone. I'm Katie Couric. My man Curry. Good morning, everybody. A terrible turn in a terrible story. It's really tragic and so disturbing. And
1: in October of 1998, a young gay man made national news.
2: Matthew Shepard was beaten last weekend, tied to a wooden fence by two men who met Shepard in a bar in Laramie, Wyoming. Eighteen hours later, a passing bicyclist summoned help after almost mistaking Shepard's bloodied body for a scarecrow.
5: I think this is the first really big gay story I remember following. Nancy
1: producer Matt
5: Collette. I guess Ellen came out the year before, but somehow I seem to have missed that when I was a kid. But this story, it was everywhere.
0: Shepard remained on life support at a Colorado hospital until this morning when he passed away. A hospital spokesman said Shepard's family is grateful for support from around the world. They said
5: that uh, he came into the world premature and he left the world premature.
4: And it just hit me why I am so devastated by it. It's because
1: this is what I was trying to stop. This is exactly why I did what I did.
3: While it wouldn't be proper for me to comment on the specifics of this case, I do want to say again, crimes of hate and crimes of violence cannot be tolerated in our country.
0: You couldn't open a newspaper without seeing something about Matthew. Uh, you couldn't turn on the radio or the TV or the Internet. or you, It was everywhere. And the big question that... that, that was posited was why this one and why now? This
5: is playwright and director Moises Kaufman. He's part of the Tectonic Theater Company in New York. And after Matthew's death, he started thinking about how a play might be able to take a wider look at the impact of
0: this crime. Going to Laramie and talking to the people of the town was interesting because we thought, oh, we might be able to get a document. Uh, a transcript of how people are thinking and feeling, not only about homosexuality, but about class and education and and the church and religion and politics. So this idea, this desire to do an X-ray of the zeitgeist of that time at the end of the millennium became our driving force. Matthew's
5: death was hardly the only hate crime that happened in America that year. But Moises was struck by how this particular murder seemed to finally penetrate the mainstream consciousness. And he thought that by looking close at this one place, he could get a better understanding of why it captivated an
0: entire nation. A big influence for us when we were writing the play was Our Town by Thornton Wilder. And, you know, what we tried to do was try to talk about what was the social contract in Laramie like? How did people cohabit and coexist And to me, those questions are pertinent regardless of the murder. I want to believe that one of the reasons why the play continues to be relevant is because it speaks of how do we live together and how do we survive one another. So Moises
5: and his team went to Wyoming several times over about a year and did interviews with more than 200 people in Laramie. They talked to people there about how Matthew Shepard's death changed their lives, often in unexpected, indirect ways. And they were there in the courtroom when the two young men who attacked Matthew were convicted and sentenced. Moises and the tectonic team eventually turned those
0: interviews into a play called The Laramie Project. You know, what's been astonishing is that for the better part of the last 20 years, it it continues to be one of the most performed plays in America.
1: If you'd asked me before, I would have told you, you know, Laramie is a beautiful town. It's, It's secluded, you know, secluded enough so you can have your own... Identity. You know, now, after Matthew, you know, we're a town defined by an accident or a crime. You know, we become Waco or Jasper. You
5: know, We're a noun or a definition or a sign. The Laramie Project ran in New York and also became a film, which Moises directed for HBO. It tells the stories of those directly affected, Matthew's friends, classmates, and people like the police and hospital workers who treated him before he died. But it also highlights people with big, complicated feelings, especially how so many struggled to weigh their own disagreements with homosexuality against the violence Matthew suffered. All the dialogue comes from interviews with the people of Laramie, adapted verbatim for the stage. Matthew's voice is, of course, absent. And there's another notable absence in the play. Although we hear from Matthew's father, we never do hear from his mom. The
0: first time that we saw Judy Shepard, I think, was at the trial of the first perpetrator. And we saw each other at the trials, at both trials, for day after day after day after day. She could see us. And, um, but we never, never spoke to her. At one of the sentencing
5: hearings, Matthew's father, Dennis, read a statement to the court. But his mom, Judy, stayed silent in her seat. She also never spoke to the press. Not only was she grieving,
0: she was also known for being painfully shy. And then when the play was about to open in Denver, I called her and I said, I have a copy of the script. And again, it's not about Matthew, but it mentions Matthew, and I would like to give it to you to see if there's anything that we got wrong, if there's any, you know. And um, so she said, thank you. She got the play, and she called me back, and she said, nothing that you said about Matthew is incorrect. Uh, Thank you for doing this. This is a play that I will never see in my life.
2: Well, the first time I saw any of it was when HBO did their version, and they filmed it in Laramie.
3: In Laramie, Wyoming, a young man is in
4: a deep coma near death from a savage being.
2: And I was turning channels on my TV, and I saw it start. When I first found out, I just thought it was horrible. Nobody deserves that. I don't care who you are. I think because it was filmed in Laramie, it was like I couldn't stop watching it. The part that is the hardest for me, and I think the most beautiful part of the play, is when Dennis is reading his court statement at the end. My son Matthew did not look like a winner.
1: He was rather uncoordinated and wore braces from the age of 13 until the day he died.
2: Takes me right back to the courtroom. It's just really hard to watch.
1: Matt's beating, hospitalization, and funeral focus worldwide attention on hate. Good is coming out of evil. People have said enough is enough. I miss my son, but I am proud to be able to say that he was my son.
5: When did you realize that this was the The magnitude of this of of Matthew's of Matthew's death and how much it resonated with, with the country was it something that was sort of immediately apparent to you or did it take some time to set in?
2: You know, I'm not sure it still has. Uh, I think if I if I examined the magnitude as you call it, I might be paralyzed. <laughs> I'm not really sure, but we received so much correspondence that we understood it touched a lot of people in many different ways and. Uh, The the fact that we didn't get hardly any hate mail was the biggest surprise to me. I thought all the publicity that this is getting, uh, actually talking about the gay community as human beings, which was kind of unusual at the time, uh, that we might get a lot of hate mail, and we just didn't. It was all support and love and sympathy and empathy and people telling us their stories. But I'm not really sure that even today we understand how big the story really was. I don't know that I want to know how big it is.
5: Yeah. There are so many ways people can learn Matt's story now, whether just as history or through the play or whatever. And I wonder, like, regardless of the form, what do you want people to take away from his story?
2: The one thing that stands out for me, and I hope everyone realizes it, is when we start talking about minorities and people of color and immigrants and, and people who don't, perhaps look like us or talk like us or come from where we do, that if you remove Matt's sexuality from the play and insert immigrant or color or national origin or any of those things, it's exactly the same story. Um, This is a universal case of bigotry and discrimination and uh, personal bias, and it could be against anyone, not just someone from the gay community. And I, I hope that they understand that that's really the universal message of this story.
5: The play highlights this Wyoming of of 1998 and, by extension, sort of America of 1998. And, I mean, what have you seen change in Wyoming since 98? Uh, You know, how have you seen neighbors, the community, conversations change in the last 20 years?
2: It's hard to be different in any way in Wyoming. Um, But you have to understand Wyoming is only 500,000 people in the state, the demographics are 96% white. There's just practically no diversity there. So just the very lack of population makes it really difficult for change. There are many gay folks who live in Wyoming, but there's really no place for them to gather uh, that shows any kind of number. Like there's no gay bars in Wyoming, but that's not because it would be unwelcome. It's because there's not a population base to support it. Right. Of what I am aware and hear about from others about the gay community in Wyoming in different locales, is that it's thriving and growing and accepted. Um, politically, we're very behind the times, very red state, anti-everything, pretty much. Um, I see my neighbors more accepting. When I used to go grocery shopping, people would come up to me and touch my arm and whisper to me, thank you for your work, I have a gay nephew, grandson, you know, whatever. And now they don't whisper to me anymore. They say it out loud. So that's progress, right? Right. I think that's progress.
5: Yeah. Where, where were you on the spectrum of acceptance when Matt first came out to you?
2: In the beginning, when Matt came out to us, we were all totally accepting. I, maybe we already knew. You know, I'm, I'm not really sure. I had many gay friends in college, so this was not anything new to me. Um, Dennis, I don't know that it ever crossed his mind one way or the other, but what we did understand was Matt was our son primarily. That was the thing. He happened to be gay. You know, Logan happens to be straight. It just doesn't really matter. Uh, we definitely we were on the pro side. But I'll add to that, we didn't really know anything about the struggle the gay community per se was having either because we lived in Wyoming. So, you know, the notion that we knew anything about what was happening in the community beyond what everybody else knew, uh, just we just didn't. We just didn't.
5: So you don't speak at all in the play, but there's this one moment when we do sort of hear from you, it's when a hospital spokesman comes out to brief the national media, and he reads a statement you wrote.
0: Go home. Give your kids a hug.
5: and Don't mm-hmm. let a day go by without telling them that you love them. And it's just such a simple but really powerful message, and I wonder, where did it come from?
2: Well, we had just lost Matt, and I—crap! Oh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, It—we had received such an outpouring of support and love from uh, everybody, um, and the hospital staff was brilliant. And you know, the the emails that were coming, and the cards, and flowers, and all that stuff that we were told about—we never did actually see because there's just so much of it. Uh, the protests that happened outside the hospital, the vigils, and um, of the ones we did read about, it just seemed like a seminal moment where we we frequently leave our loved ones without telling them how much we love them, and you never know when it's going to be over. And I just wanted people to realize really how short life can be.
5: How do you think these past twenty years have changed to you? Like, what's that evolution been like?
2: Well, if you knew me before this happened, you would be amazed at what I'm doing now. Um, My friends, there's like the Judy before and then there's the Judy after. Uh, I am an introvert by nature, off the scale. So to do this work took some uh, practice, work, uh, talking to other people, trying to figure out exactly how I was going to use the voice I had for whatever limited amount of time I had. Um, and try to make the most of it. So it's just, we just had to figure out how to do it. Yeah. And I won't say it's been easy. It's been an experience. It's a very steep learning curve. I've learned more about myself in this time period than I probably ever wanted to know. Um, I can be the old me when I go home and the new me when I'm with folks because they need me to be the new me when I'm with them. Huh. That's fine. That's cool. I get that. And I can do that for a while. Uh, but this, is, this is hard for me. Um, Dennis is far more the extrovert, Mm -hmm. you know, get out there and say things, but he sometimes says things he shouldn't say. (laughs) Um, And now that he's retired, we travel together, which is really great because he's really good at some of it, and I'm better at other parts of it. So it's really good, but it's been a learning experience, and I have learned and gained so much from it.
5: Judy is now president of the Matthew Shepard Foundation. She has become one of the most prominent advocates for hate crime legislation.
1: So we, you have been trying to, you know, to, to get this attention and tell people we just found out right before you walked out.
2: Yeah, we just found out that um, the uh, part of the bill that will increase existing hate crime laws and now protect sexual orientation, uh, gender, disability uh, has been passed on the House floor and will be going to the Senate. And in
5: 2016, she weighed in on the national election.
2: Words have an influence. Violence causes pain. Hate can rip us apart. I know what can happen as the result of hate, and Donald Trump should never be our president.
5: And now, two years into the Trump presidency, she's more vocal than ever.
2: We have to elect officials who understand what America is, really is, and not what it was in the 50s. This is not the same place. We don't look the same. We don't think the same as we did then. We have come so far in the realm of civil rights and acceptance of each other. uh, And it's just breaking my heart to see us turning back to the past. It's just, it's awful. So my action plan is this. Y'all have to really pay attention to the candidates. You have to register to vote, and you really have to vote. You have to take the step to do it. Y'all just have to be involved. You have a voice. Please use it. This is not the time to retreat. This is not the time to talk softly. Be loud, be out, be proud, don't give up, run for office. I'm worried for everyone who's not a straight white Christian man. So this is the time to take action, not the time to retreat.
4: After the break, we stopped by rehearsals for a star-studded performance of The Laramie Project and talked to one of the performers, Samara Wiley.
1: Nancy, we'll be back in a minute. As Matt mentioned, it's the 20th anniversary of Matthew Shepard's death, and there are events all over the country, including here in New York. Recently, there was an all-star reading of the Laramie Project.
4: The whole thing was a fundraiser for the Matthew Shepard Foundation and the Tectonic Theater Project. And it starred people like Asia Kate Dillon, Adam Rippon, and one of my favorite actors today, Samira Wiley.
1: Samira is best known for her work in TV, where she's played Poussey in Orange is the New Black, and she was Moira in The Handmaid's Tale.
4: In this production, Samira plays Romaine Patterson, a friend of Matthew who's probably best known as the person who created the Angel Wings. There are these big wings made from white sheets and plastic pipes that were designed to shield the Shepherd family from protests by Fred Phelps and the Westboro Baptist Church.
3: So this big-ass band of angels comes in, and we don't say a fucking word. We just turn our backs, and we just stand there. And we are a group of people bringing forth a message of peace, of love, and compassion. And we are calling it angel action. Yeah! Yeah! This 21-year-old little lesbian is ready to walk the line with him!
4: Those same angel wings are still used today to counter hateful protests across the country. Most recently, they were handed off to the LGBT Center in Orlando after the Pulse shooting.
1: We talked to Samira in a rehearsal room at Lincoln Center, and we asked her if the play feels dated
3: or maybe prescient. Maybe both. Maybe both. It does have me questioning about, like, where we were then, where we are now, and the the question of progress and what have we made and what do we still need to go and have we done all of those questions.
4: The part that's sort of like, it's not dated, it's still relevant now, is that scary?
3: Um, yes, but life is scary as shit, so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think basically like yeah. anything about life is kind of scary, just in human history. like It seems like we, over and over and over again, we hurt each other and we don't know how to, sort of get out of this cycle. But then there's this cycle of um, trying to repair that and trying to understand how to relate to someone in a way that is not harmful. So it does, I guess, make me a little um, wary about, like, what progress are we making? But it also makes me think of, like... Okay, well, we're not crazy. You know what I mean? Like, this is just like who humans are and humans as humans, we have to push through this. And that is where I think the the, the art comes in, is to try to um, put a salve on, on our our wounds.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're involved in this project. You're also very well known for playing Coussey on Orange is the <laughs> New Black and Moira on Handmaid's Tale. You're involved in a lot of projects that talk about queerness and Mm -hmm. in several of them where you play a queer character, Mm -hmm. is that intentional in your career to seek out these roles where you can be sort of exploring queerness?
3: Uh, It's absolutely not. (laughs) Um, You think I'm joking, but it really isn't. Um, I am a strong believer of whatever's supposed to happen will happen. I think that if I wasn't portraying these characters, I wonder how my own journey with my own um, sexual orientation, how I would embrace that, how I would walk through the world if I wasn't able to inhabit the characters that I have been. It's not a choice, but I'm very, very happy that it's worked out this way.
1: How how do you think it would be different if you hadn't played these roles, your journey?
3: Um, well, I, I know I definitely had some ideas uh, in the beginning of my career of, like, what I could do and what I couldn't do because of who I am. And um, one of the things that I couldn't do in that whatever spreadsheet I had was um, – I can do this once, you know what I mean? But, like, if I do it a a couple times, if I play gay twice, you know, then I'm that and I'm typecast and I don't want to do all of whatever, whatever, whatever. Um, But I have been able to, hopefully, in Poussey and in Moira, to completely different, complex, you know, characters that are both black gay women but are... Completely different from each other, and I think that that's important to be able to show them how multifaceted we all are. Mm. Um, and I think that those things helped me embrace all the facets of myself.
4: When you were playing puse were to what degree were you out?
3: Um, are we talking first season or fourth? Season? <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's a difference. Um, no, yeah, there's definitely a difference for okay. sure. For sure, for sure. Absolutely. I think first season I wasn't out at all. Um, I mean, I think that I mean by fourth season I was like, hey, come give me a pussy. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um in the beginning, uh I um I mean I was playing a gay character, like I said, from the beginning or I I had always I um thought of her in that way. And there was a someone from my cast actually, they were like doing an interview and they like were talking about um out gay actors in the cast, and they mentioned my name, and I saw it in print, and I cried. Mm. <sighs> I cried a lot, and I like tried to get it taken down, and like, look, I had a journey, oh. you guys. I, it was I was not always just like super open hearted and like I'm a gay gaymo, but Uh yeah. Yeah, and also like that I mean the, more specifically that's something that somebody took from me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's it's cool. it, it, everyone's journey is their own. You should be able to come out on your own terms. So that was probably a little deeper than you know than just but no, I wasn't I wasn't out in the beginning and um I think falling in love with Poussey, which is a real thing that happened to me, uh helped me fall in love with myself as well. Yeah.
4: I mean, the rest of the world also fell in love with Poussey and you. She's got a great smile, right? <laughs> Poussey, Poussey.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> um It's interesting to hear you talk about sort of falling into the, not falling, but like ending up playing these like out queer roles, mm-hmm. especially because there's like a lot of conversation right now about if cishet actors can play queer roles. Yeah. And I wonder like what you think about that conversation, if there's like a, a side that you fall on.
3: Um, I think that as long as we're having the exact same opportunities on our side in terms of I want queer people and trans people to be able to have all the opportunities to play cis people, if it's equal, then sure. But um, I do think that right now it is not equal. Mm. And because it is not equal— it is very important that we tell our own stories and maybe we can get to a place where we're all telling everybody's story. But our experience as queer people in this world, in this country, is um, a very singular thing. Can I
1: ask a dumb side question? Yeah, sure, sure. I remember reading an interview once where you said, I think the interviewer asked, like, whose career you would want to emulate. And uh-huh. your answer, which I'm obsessed with, was Regina King. Regina King. <laughs> Regina King. How are you tracking on your Regina King <laughs> dreams and balls.
3: We won an Emmy on the same weekend, I'm happy, okay? Look, I was backstage when she came back there with her Emmy, and I was like, you go, sis. I don't even know if you remember me, but I love you. Um, well, okay, I think things are going well. Um, I just got to get me a boondocks series. Cool. Um, voicing both of the characters, and then I'll think I'll be on king status. Yeah. That's what we'll call it now, King status. King status. <laughs> (laughs) Amazing. Amazing.
4: So, for the next season of The Handmaid's Tale.
3: You got it. Go ahead. What is happening to Moira? Today, uh, in my email, great day um, because I just received the first two scripts of season three. So if you hack into my phone, you can maybe find out. (laughs) Have you read it? No, I just got them. They just got emailed. (laughs) Scripts have arrived, you guys. (laughs) Amazing.
1: All right. That's our show. But before we go, we're still looking for your stories for our I've been meaning to tell you project.
4: It could be something funny, sad, confusing, anything really that you've been meaning to talk to someone about. Go to nancypodcast.org tell to get started.
1: Credits.
4: Our producer. Matt Collette. Sound designer.
1: Jeremy Bloom. Editor. Jenny Lawton.
4: Executive producer. Paula Schumann. I'm Kathy Tu.
1: I'm Tobin Lowe.
4: And Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios.
1: Fun fact, I also went to Juilliard, and I think we were maybe there at the same time. Oh, really? What year Fully did you see? leave?
3: What years were you there? I don't know. 09 to 11? Uh, Yes, yes. I was there in 09.
1: So my question is, I remember whenever I was with, like, actors in the elevator, there was a lot of dialect work happening. <laughs> Do you have a fun accent that you can still do? Um,
3: well, I just finished a play in Williamstown uh, where I, we worked on a Kosa dialect, which is uh, South African. I'm um, trying to think of like something from um, the uh, play. Let me tell you how to pick up a woman. You walk up to her like this, you do with your eyes like this, you see? You say to her, mama. Okay, that's where we're gonna stop. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I'm not going to
3: actually tell you how to pick her up. (laughs) I was
4: like, I would like to know, though. (laughs)